Hey everybody, let me tell you about Audible.com. You can sign up at audibletrial.com forward slash brick pit. We'll give you a free credit, two credits if you're already a member of Prime. Uh, the Audible co- catalog's got podcasts, audiobooks, guided wellness, Audible originals. Listen all you want. There'll be a friendly email reminder to let you know when the trial's expiring. Welcome to the Brick Pit. This is the podcast you didn't know you didn't need, where we have serious talk about unserious things. And I'm Adam, and uh, co-hosting with me today is, as always, the man who actually holds the world record for walking out of the most movies. It's our good friend, Josh. Say hi, Josh. You always do the record thing. Like, do you, have, you have a copy of like the Guinness World Book? Like, that's all, it's, it's like, I don't have to have a copy. He's got the volume that's just you. That's just the record I, you hold. I don't have the Guinness World Record. I have your autobiography in front of me. I'm reading from the text you wrote, friend. Also joining us is uh, is the reason that Johnny Cash always wore black. It's, it's our good friend, Jason. Say hi, Jason. Yeah, I couldn't do laundry very well. It's just simple. Just one that, that could get real weird real quick. <laughs> that was a little too open-ended, man. <laughs> All right, so starting off this week, uh, we have something uh, that we are extremely excited about. One of you knuckleheads out there in the real world sent us a voicemail through our anchor.fm forward slash bricked pit. Guess what? We're going to hear it today. So, Josh, would you like to play the... Sure. Hey, Josh, this is producer John from the Green Shirt Podcast and Open Pike Night. Thought I'd respond to your Congo hate. Really enjoying your podcast so far. And uh, yeah, I, I got to agree. Pretty terrible movie. Absolutely a crime and a waste of Bruce Campbell's talents. Uh, I don't ever remember any gorilla using a laser, but I definitely remember Laura Linney using the laser because the line delivery of what is that the latest in communication technology and then she starts blasting apart gorillas with a laser that is etched in my brain forever glad you're feeling better from covid keep up the good work and i'll hear you guys later there you go somebody listened to the hate box for once Yeah, so call back for those of us who didn't listen to your hate box because we don't. <laughs> I, I'm going to do a hate box on how I hate that you don't listen to our own show. <laughs> it's a multi-part. I, you are in it. <laughs> this is your show. Uh, I don't know. I, I will agree with what you said on that hate box because Congo, like I read the novel before I watch the the film so that the bruce campbell reveal wasn't a big surprise to me but the novel is like the most mediocre michael crichton novel and that's a that's a michael that's a, crichton that's a, novel. That, that's, that's, a bold, that's a bold statement because michael crichton is is the king of mediocrity but boy he doesn't mind cashing those worlds is he is he dead he's dead right he's dead he's long yeah. dead yeah he, he denied climate change and then he died. Yeah. <laughs> There's a direct line. <laughs> so things like Jurassic Park was a fun read. 
and the, yeah, yeah, Jurassic Park. Th- great. There's a lot of like interesting concepts and all that, but like in Congo, there's like a page and a half where he talks about like how the satellite phone worked. Like, I, oh, right. I don't care <laughs> in a movie with sign language gorillas and you know, super intelligent gorilla, albino gorillas. I don't care how a sat phone works, that's not why I'm reading this book. Yeah, he's. Uh... Congo sucked, man. <laughs> Congo was a terrible movie. Like I said, just coming from a mediocre book to be just that bad of a movie. Crichton was like, had a great track record of, he has a, probably has a better track record of books to film than like Stephen King. And I mean, yeah, part, of that, part of that's a volume thing, but like, yeah, yeah, yeah. For, the, for the most part, like Sphere was good. I really mm-hmm. enjoyed Sphere. Yeah. Uh, Jurassic Park obviously was like a mega hit. Westworld. Is Andromeda Strain? Is Andromeda Strain? Westworld wasn't a book adaptation, though. That was well, but he wrote the script. Yeah. 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 Right. He wrote the script. And what's, I think he's a better director than he was a novelist. I, I would agree. He's, he's, it's fun. Like, like Stephen King, I, I joke in that about how, like, uh, Stephen King's a better writer, worse director than, than Michael Crichton. Um, but like Stephen King talked about how William Goldman was like the only person he knew. He said all writers want to write screenplays. The only person that pulled it off was William Goldman because he wrote uh, what Butch Cassidy, mm-hmm. and uh, he wrote the the novel Princess Bride, and he wrote the screenplay for Princess Bride, which complement each other, which is like insane. The fact that you can watch that movie and then read the book, and they they enhance each other, but I think Crichton was in that in that realm that he he could cross over. He could write a novel and he could also write and direct. But Congo sucked. Yeah. <laughs> Congo so, sure. And we the, really appreciate our listener taking yeah. the time to let well, us know. And, and, the, and he's the producer on the Green Shirt podcast, which is a, a newbie uh, watching the next generation. It's, it's hilarious. One of the best podcasts out there. And uh, he's working on Open Pike Night, which is going to be on Strange New World. So check out their podcast. They're, they're worthwhile. So down to business for our show. This week we're going to talk about uh, an idea that I think is pretty cool. And it was actually suggested uh, on our Facebook page by a fan. And, uh, and we decided to run with it, uh, at least uh, in, its, in a form anyway. But anyway, we're going to talk about scores and soundtracks and movies and and how they really make a huge difference for for the mood of a film. They can make or break a movie, in my opinion. I, I think that you know a, a very bad soundtrack. That's I think if a if a score is doing its job well, it's noticeable, but it's not overwhelming. Whereas if a really a really bad score can overtake, it can break pit you. It can bring you out of the movie because the music's so off putting or so weird. It, it it's like it's like movie. editing. If it's done well, yeah. you don't notice it. Perfect. Yeah. It, it, it's a big part that I don't think a lot of people understand is the film overall is the important thing. Mm-hmm. It's not a single performance in it. Right. You know, it, it's not a single right. design. It, everything has to work well. Well, yeah. To the, create a whole. It, it's it's a it's a giant collaboration, which makes it more unique than than many other artistic. Ex- uh, expressions because there's so many moving parts and they all have to be firing on all cylinders to create a masterpiece. The ones that make the sausage are usually overlooked unless, unless you're, you know, John Williams or something. But uh, I think we need to talk about 
There's two things I want to talk about on the more esoteric side. That's that's the difference between diegetic and non-diegetic sound. I think that's important okay. in this discussion. Adam, do you know what diegetic and non-diegetic sound is? Let's say I don't. <laughs> I want to make sure you understand it to the level that I do. So explain it to me and I'll tell you if you do. <laughs> What you're not hearing right now, listeners, is the editing out of the tapping of keyboards while everyone looks at Google. (laughs) No, I I will not. And I will say, I don't know what that means. So why don't you tell me? Okay. well, it's a pretty important concept in in film and and studying film is that diegetic sound is sound that exists within the narrative. So what's what people on screen can hear. Mm. So buses, other people talking, that's diegetic sound. Non-diegetic sound originates outside of the film, more or less. So soundtracks, mm-hmm. narrations, that is not it's it's step back and it's it's outside of, of what people are aware of in the film. And an example of that that goes beyond like soundtracks and you know narration and stuff like that. Uh, in the movie Birdman, they that's exactly in what I was going to pull. A, point yeah, out. a lot of sounds that, uh, like I know at one point you could hear like a grandfather clock ticking or what. Mm. And there's no clocks in the scene whatsoever. But it's it's a really it helps you in that film because reality is in question mm-hmm. a lot of well, time. Well, what's interesting about about Birdman, one of the the most innovative films in, in the past twenty years is just amazing that a lot of the soundtrack in that film is diegetic. Like, there's there's all this uh, kind of drumming going on and stuff. And as a viewer, you think that that's just, like, this rapid-fire kind of drumming is, like, setting the pace of the, of the scene again. But when Michael Keith goes outside, there's, there's this busker outside playing the drum. So it's, like, it's playing with that idea of, like, Oh, I thought it was a soundtrack, but that's like actually a guy outside playing the drums. So it's diegetic sound, masking itself as non-diegetic sound, and that kind of adds to the whole like. Whether you realize it or not, like the film is about you, like Jason said, like what is real. Things like that, by that weaving in between the the that form, unconsciously sets you at unease because you're like, "This something's weird's going on here." Like the guy's playing drums, <laughs> right? And I thought he was. I thought that was just the soundtrack, but it's but it wasn't. And then there's the ticking clock, and, but that you don't see, and so you start whether you're aware of it or not. You're questioning like, "What what's going on here? Is this is this inside or outside?" That so that interplay which i didn't know this is the the terminology for it is actually mm-hmm. what i really one of the aspects of good film that i absolutely love mm-hmm. and uh I, just to throw a quick example for me that that's a recent recent to me movie is baby the baby driver i don't know yeah. if you've seen this movie but it you know it has it, it hugely centers around the music mm-hmm. that he's listening to as the getaway driver in a series of of heists and whatnot and he's the he's the he, is he's he hearing the baby a pair? driver He's hearing impaired. Is that what it is? He, I can't recall. It's been a while since I've seen this movie, but I, I think he's, yeah, he has, uh, was 
severe tinnitus or something like yeah, that? Yeah, so that's it. So if not, and he has to hear the music because it, it helps him block it out. And it drowns everything else out. And his and his uh revolving crew of bad guys inevitably have problems with him always having earbuds in his ear, but that's what helps him succeed in this in this role. That's a really good use of that. You don't because the opening scene of that, you don't know if it's what you don't understand what's going on until it you realize it's actually what he's hearing is this mm-hmm. really loud music. Great example of that. Yeah. Well, the other thing that I, that I wanted to to bring up, and this is this, I mean, there's certain things that apply to any kind of narrative, and to me, it's it's the uh, was it the the Hegelian dialectic? The the Hegelian dialectic is the the crux of it is you have thesis antithesis that clash and create synthesis, and that that is it's been described as the heartbeat of God. Not to get like two, but, but here we are. So, but I think like like juxtaposition, and this it's more of like a uh, the Hegelian dialectic is more like a, like towards structured towards like either like arguments, kind of like uh, right, like Socrates or Plato and stuff, or it or like narratives as in books. But I think it, it's really applicable in in a in a way to film because like you shot reverse shot. That's right. Synthesis, antithesis, create something new. So juxtaposition creates something new, and soundtracks are very much part of that. And it's and it's we've talked about the Kuleshev effect in the past. And that's mm-hmm. two things put together create something new. So I think the soundtrack falls into that. That it can like uh, was it the Dawn of the Dead, <laughs> the original. Yeah, yeah. So like there's a scene where it's playing that goofy crazy mall music and the and the zombies are like shuffling around and it's hilarious because because this is goofy music point counterpoint then you but then you change that music to like more serious and like 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 the violin strings that are you know do that suspenseful thing then it changes the mood of of it's the same shots, but it's this it's a different mood based solely on the music. So I did I'll, I'll confess I didn't read it, but I, I did I did get a book called um, uh, Music and Film Soundtracks and Syner- and Synergy, which obviously covers all the things we're talking about. And I just didn't get to it before we recorded. But the part is basically I what I just said. It is essentially what uh, the part the part that I did read. I didn't finish it, but it basically goes through a history of when film first. So even silent films were almost always accompanied by a pianist in the theater. Like that, even when there even when there was no dialogue spoken on the screen, there was always music still. Well, the, uh, interesting fact that's what my grandmother did. She played she played the soundtrack on piano and silent films. That's really cool. Yeah, it is really cool. It's in your blood, man. <laughs> well, I was a kid, I was like, stop playing piano, Grandma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. this, movie, this is not I mean, a silent movie. It's just all mute. This is real life, woman. I was mean. I think the implication is that Josh was at the silent movie. That was what I was trying 20. to do. but <laughs> So I'd like to talk about a couple of, of distinctions here, which I... It may not be necessary, but what is the difference between a, a soundtrack and a score? Oh, I, I think that's that's excellent. 
question. I don't. <laughs> uh, podcast <laughs> over. <laughs> point counterpoint. Now here comes the synthesis. <laughs> um, so a score is uh, is typically um, written for the film. Um, it usually is probably some kind of classical music, but not always. Um, and, I'll, and I'll give a, a quick example of one that's not here in a second. But so when you think scores, the ones that I think of are Lord of the Rings, right off the bat, um, which I mean, my goodness, like one of the best scores ever written for any like it stands up as a orchestral piece on its own even outside the movie um star wars iconic right anything basically anything john williams who's if you don't know he's a famous composer who who writes dozens of movies as one he Oscar did not story. write lord of the rings he did not no that was uh, uh howard shore howard shore thank you yeah i almost said philip west that wasn't right <laughs> that's uh examples of um and we'll talk, I think it, in due course, we'll talk more about John Williams and we'll, we'll save that for a minute. But another score that I consider a score, a lot of there's, I want to bring this up because there's some controversy about this. And there actually has been some in our Facebook group about whether or not this constitutes a score is Vangelis for uh, Blade Runner. So they wrote all that music for the film, but it's all um, synth techno. It's in that vein. And if you've never heard the Blade Runner sound, uh, the, the, the score for Blade Runner, I love it. It's one of my favorite. Uh, score. It's just one of those things that I just really enjoy. So. Many people disagree that it, if it's not classical, it's not a score. That it's a well, That's a stupid opinion. And I, okay. Obviously. <laughs> so I'm, glad, I'm glad we're all on board with that. And, Who and said die- these things on this uh, Faces yeah. book? And, and, and Die Hard is a Christmas movie. So this is, <laughs> we're all in agreement. <laughs> this, no, so a the, score is, is music made for, written for the film, the film. right? It right. doesn't have to be a, a particular setup. I agree. Or, or certain instruments or anything like that. It Once again, it's how it works. If there are the people film. playing the music while the movie's on the screen to record it, it's a score. If Fair. it's if it's a Rolling Stone song and it's a gangster film, it's, <laughs> it's a soundtrack. I'm looking so, at you, Marty Scorsese. <laughs> <laughs> And they can and they can intersect. There, there are many films yeah, that have scores and soundtrack. and soundtrack. Uh, most, I would say, most films have an L. Because I would like, say uh, the the premier example being Transformers the movie because there um, there is actual uh, synth pop score done by Vince DiCola, and then you have like the Stan Bush classic, You Got the Touch, and the Weird Al Yankovic classic, Dare to Be Stupid. That's right. That was that was the first album I ever bought. So I know I didn't put this in the notes, and I may be catching both of you off guard by asking this, but I know a little bit about this, and I'm hoping one of you know more about sort of the economics of paying for the rights to use songs in TV or film. And I know I know a touch of this. No reason I know it's because one of the movies that I'd like to talk about is American Graffiti. If you've not seen American Graffiti, it's a it's a it's a top one hundred, top two hundred classic. Um, it's proto Happy Day. That's exactly yeah. what I was going to say. It's yeah. it's George Lucas Happy Days. Yeah, and it was really cool. Is it's it, it wasn't his first movie, but it was kind of the movie that made him. It gave him the the ability to do other things, and we had the Star yes. Wars and Indiana Jones and whatever. Right? 
it was a success that gave him it was, that, it was a that financial kind of, and critical success. Yes, and it was a great movie. It's just a great movie. It's still one of my favorite movies. And um, sorry, it takes it takes place in the 1950s. It's yeah, it's Happy Days esque or whatever. But the thing that you'll remember or I remember about this movie is that there's a scene where if you if I don't know how it was for you guys, but if you grew up in a rural or like suburban town where there's literally nothing to do. A lot of the, one of the things you do as a high schooler is you go drive around and you go drive where everybody else is driving, usually on the, the same, the strip, everybody, every small town has this, you roll down your windows and you're blasting your music or whatever. When I was doing this, when I was in high school, it was everybody was listening to whoever could blast the loudest out of the subwoofer. So nobody could hear anything really. It was like, <laughs> but in American graffiti, what was really, really cool. This is the memorable scene for me is they're all listening to the local radio station in their top-down Cadillacs, and they've got the music blasting. And so they're all driving on this road, and everybody's listening to the same song. What was really cool is this movie was filmed in the 70s, but it takes place in the 50s. And George Lucas insisted that they... they so the original pitch from the studio was, we're going to save a ton of money, but we're, we're going to write a bunch of music that sounds like the 50s. And he's like, absolutely not. We will use the real music that really was played at this time, even though it was still popular. It was very, very expensive. And it actually made up a substantial portion of the budget of the film was the rights to play these songs. That's what made that movie for me. Like mm -hmm. the music was what made the movie. And it's the only reason I remember that movie. Like the plot is different. It's mostly irrelevant. And it's got to your point. It is. A, eh, but yeah, I really sound, like it. But the sound. The soundtrack drives the story in that movie, and anyway, that's so. Well, yeah, but it, and that it's also like that's when you're that age. Your music is your music your is life. Yeah, it's expressing all the things that you can't express for yourself. Right, and the and the uh, using a sound alike would be like when when Diamond Dallas Page used to come out to like a faux smells like Teen Spirit. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's exactly it's, like that. <laughs> well, let's you know, if you go back and watch, you know, one of the things that's happened recently with the DVD releases of uh, the old show WKRP in Cincinnati. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like the yeah. music was a big part of that show because they yeah. played contemporary songs. Well, there was no concept beyond syndication for that TV yeah. show after that. You know, there wasn't VHS and there wasn't DVDs, there wasn't streaming. But now that those things there, they, of course, didn't have the rights to them anymore. And it would have cost a ton of money for them to get the rights for those exact same songs. So now you you have the sound alikes. Oh, I didn't know and that. It's, yeah. yeah. And it's a lot of people are very unhappy with it for that reason. The the same thing happened with Married with Children's theme. Yep. Well, Sinatra, the Sinatra song. Yeah. Sinatra, yeah. So they so they got some bull crap. <laughs> and, oh. and it's I hate to say it, but it's like and I think it's just because of familiarity. Yeah. You right. see you see that fountain and you don't hear love and marriage, you're like, wow <laughs> Al's a loser. I don't like that guy at all. <laughs> <laughs> it, so you know, to your point, you said something you're gonna you can maybe repeat it better than but when you were a teenager the music said things what did you just said? The, the music expressed the things that you couldn't express for yourself. Just like Jason so, is expressing now, which you can't for, express. For me, yes. He's <laughs> yeah. my... He's your soundtrack. My, he's my interpreter. Use so your words, Adam. <laughs> I'm, 
I'm the I'm the gorilla. I can't. <laughs> You're the gorilla from Congo. <laughs> you shake your arm up and down, uh, and this magic glove. Jason is your power glove to your Congo monkey. <laughs> there is something visceral about about the way music. I'll give you a quick example. Is you know um, there was a study done a couple of years ago, about five years ago now, that showed that folks with dementia or Alzheimer's who are in a long-term care facility, if they if the uh, caregivers play music from their t- the the patient's teenage years, the patients do better. They have good days. They have more good days than bad days when they have that music because they, music, they recognize it and respond right to it immediately. Yeah. And and I think like you know sit sense and smell can trigger memories. So can music. And mm-hmm. I think it's one of the, it's one of those deep deep brain activities that music really well, affects you. I, I think for a lot of people it is. I mean, it is like a time machine. Yeah. You when you hear a song, certain music and stuff, it, you're there. Right. You know, but um, I don't. I don't think that's like that for for everyone. But uh, I had a friend of mine that was. You know, he saw. He said, "My wife can just like have music on while she's like cleaning the house." And he's like, "I can't do that." He said, "Because for me, listening to music is an active activity. It's not passive." And I think, you know, for for a lot of people, that's how it shakes out. Like for me, like yeah. I don't want when I'm listening to music. That's what I want. I want the music and nothing else, and get lost in it. You know, and and then on the other hand, we have other friends who. Don't listen we, to music we, or we our could, podcast. <laughs> we we could name two thousand of the most popular songs ever written, and they might be able to identify three. <laughs> so, right, we're just is, overhearing yeah. them in other conversations with other yeah, people. mostly from your, yeah, from no, <laughs> it's exactly right. Just from <laughs> it's one of those that you know when you're a teenager, like so that that is a very difficult transition period for a lot of people, and and music becomes a very important part of that time of your life and i've said it before i was 13 when smells like uh teen spirit came out and you know the whole nevermind album dropped and i mean it literally changed my life it changed how i thought about music you know and you know josh and i talked about that you know before that people wearing you know their old ripped jeans and stuff like that then after that it's flannel shirts <laughs> and people riding skateboards and haircuts changed. Yep. Yeah. It, it was a completely transformational period in our culture. Well, uh, yeah. And Duff McKeegan talked about how he, I saw an interview with him and he talked about when, um, appetite, he's the bass player for Guns N' Roses and they went on tour in, uh, in Europe when appetite dropped he said, you know, we came back from tour for like two months in Europe and we went back to L.A. And he said, everybody was dressed like us because they didn't realize, you know, that, that was their first first exposure to how big they got. You know, so they were like the number one, like they were the coolest band around. And then grunge hit and he was like, the ne- it was like the next day we were over like we yeah. were just not cool and he was like I was not prepared for that but it really was like it it was yeah. you know like Guns N' Roses was it and then the next thing you know like Guns N' Roses was just lame and people wouldn't even admit to having ever liked them just like in the movies <laughs> so i think uh let's take a quick uh commercial timeout and when we come back i'd like to hear Josh from you on uh on one of your uh favorite picks so 
Okay, and we're back. So, Josh, why don't you uh, why don't you lead us into some discussion about something that you that you like? Okay, uh, yeah, we usually like have act, you know, specific movies and stuff that we like to talk about. But when we're talking about soundtracks, I think it's we need to look more at the composers. And the the first one I would like to talk about is, and I think that he is the most interesting as far as soundtracks go because he's also the director, and that kind of that synergy of creating the film and and knowing the inside out of like that and doing the soundtrack is like just amazing and that is john carpenter is now exclusively music soundtracks yeah and and carpenter is a fantastic director and a very good musician it it seems like everybody like writers all want to be directors Actors all want to be directors. Directors want to be musicians. Like, you know, they're all... Like, everybody wants to be something else. Like, you know, Russell Crowe's like, I want to be a musician. And, like, Billy Bob Thornton's like, I want to be... It's like, you kind of suck at that. But John Carpenter doesn't. So, like, yeah. he's... He is Steven one of Seagal few. is a great guitarist. Steven Seagal may be the greatest... Ke- Keanu Reeves as a... Uh, no, dog star, star yeah dog star yeah yeah so yeah so there's there's like like everybody wants to create outside their their lane and i i get it you know people are multifaceted and stuff but most of the time people people are barely competent at the one thing they're good at you know <laughs> like so let's yeah. not like podcasting i am amazing at I am probably, <laughs> <laughs> but marriage, raising my, kids, right. work, terrible. <laughs> my my YouTube cooking show, not that great. So I agree with you 100. John Carpenter, a great director, also fantastic for the because I think more than anybody else, he has a sound for one. Mm. That's for sure. It's a distinctive sound. But you know when you're listening, like you could just close your eyes and you could play a John Carpenter, especially in the 80s, mm-hmm. a John Carpenter, and you know what you're in for, right, right off the bat. Not for nothing is why I think the Stranger Things sound sounds the way it does and sounds so right on point. Oh yeah, it's because no they doubt. emulate no they doubt. emulate that John Carpenter esque the thing or whatever you know like they get that. What I love about the thing is that it is it's incredibly minimalistic and mm-hmm. like you could you could deride it and be like oh it's simple and stuff it's like but does it build tension? Right. I mean it's like it's like a single note on the bass that boom boom. It's perfect. It's so intrinsic to the overall theme of the film. And there's like Lucas and John Williams and Spielberg and John Williams, like like they obviously have a relationship where they kind of sure. get each other and that and that right. shows. But it kind of cuts out the middleman when you just do it yourself. <laughs> you right. know? But it's it's so rare to have that gift. It's like there's certain musicians that'll like Dave Grohl, the uh, the first Foo Fighters album. That's all Dave Grohl, like from recording yeah. it. Like he recorded every uh, instrument in that, and then got people to play so he could play live. Not everybody can do that. <laughs> so yes. Prince, special talent. <laughs> yes, Prince, Prince being. I don't even want to talk about like I, I owe so much. In the afterlife, I'm probably going to have to spend 100 years, like, apologizing to Prince for how much I dissed him before, like, it hit me, like, what a great musician he is. Because I thought he was just, I thought he was kind of like a Lady Gaga, you know, he just sang and 
danced around, and then I realized that he was a genius <laughs> after the fact. So one of the things that we've gotten feedback on on social media is that when we start talking about films, older films especially, that people haven't seen, they feel like they don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> so, that's not my uh, fault. I, 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 I'm, tr- I will, I'm endeavoring, uh, and I guess I should have mentioned this earlier, but I'm endeavoring going forward. Just I'm just saying this so that people who made those comments know that we're hearing what you're saying. If it's a very unusual film, we're definitely going to talk about. It. I think we already do a pretty good job about that. But if it's a if it's a film we think you should know and you don't know about it, let us know and and uh, drop us a, a line on either Facebook or Twitter and let us know that. Well, you should have said more about that because you know I'm not going to tell you what the thing's about because you should know what that's about. <laughs> I can't I can't watch movies for you people. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can explain it to you, but I can't understand it for you. That's <laughs> I, I want to get on, on a point Josh was making about, you know, the minimalism of Line of Carpenters school. Yeah. Halloween is one of the most recognizable. Oh, movie, yeah. You know, horror movie themes. And it is it is simple, mm-hmm. but it is evocative of the feeling that he, he wants for that movie. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's one of those that it's it gets you right where you need to be for that film. Uh, I remember Carpenter talking about he showed an early version of the film to the studios and it went terrible because he didn't have anything added to it. He hadn't done any post-production yet. He said that that made him realize that he was never going to show a film ever again that at least didn't have the soundtrack because the soundtrack helped motivate people to be where he wanted them to be in the film. Right. I, th- I think I think that it's up there with the exorcist use of tubular bells as being like, there's just an inherent, you hear that sound and you're primed. Like there's, there's something going on with the chord structure that, that's priming your, your lizard brain to be like, uh, something that should be, on alert. Um, yeah. <laughs> warning, warning. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like the, uh, what was it, the, uh, the the reason we have the pentatonic scales because one of the notes was considered the the devil's note, so they had to take it out, so being six notes became five notes. That's true, man. That's absolutely true. But this isn't a music theory podcast. So. <laughs> that comes so, on after James Garner. Look it up, though, man. Pentatonic scale. Church didn't like that sixth note because it was the devil's note. You should know this, Adam, because you play cello. The devil, <laughs> the devil's, <laughs> the devil's I, stringed I, instrument. I, I specialize in that sixth note. That's <laughs> <laughs> the brown note. Is what you play. <laughs> Six note, Adam. That's, That's right. <laughs> so, Jason, do you have any? Uh, where would you like to go with this? I had to think a lot on it because. One, you just kind of like put down everything that came to your head. Yep. <laughs> and, feel, and feel free to steal from that. I mean, I could talk about it. If you bring it up, it's not like I can't steal. Oh, hang on. I, let me do my Jason impersonation. Uh, you didn't even feel anything out in the uh, in the <laughs> in the outline, so I don't know what you're going to talk about. <laughs> he took a he took a page out of your book, though, is what he did. So. Yeah, exactly. I did, I did the Josh version. Yeah, I'm like improv. I'm improv jazz, man. Hey. He yeah. just want 
nobody likes you either. <laughs> I was very popular in the 70s. <laughs> With a very small group of people. Uh, now, I, I kind of went the way that Josh did. Uh, I started thinking about, first I started thinking about the how the music works with the film. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of got me into the, to the people who create the composers. And one of the ones that I kind of gravitated toward was uh, Elmer Bernstein, okay. who had a, a very long career, did everything like, you know, a movie we talked about the last uh, episode, The Great Escape, he did the score for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Magnificent Seven which is the original 1960s, the most famous music scores uh, from that era and and influenced a lot of the the Westerns that came after it too. But he's doing stuff like the 10 commandments or Cecil B. DeMille and all that kind of stuff. And then like in the late seventies, he started doing comedies. Hmm. And so he did stuff like animal house, meatball, the blues brothers, uh, trading places, ghostbusters, three amigos. Uh, But I think one of the greatest ones he did was airplane. Oh, really? And for the reason for that is uh, because a lot of people, I think, would have kind of had a madcap score, kind of like it's a mad, 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 mad world. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, where the music is there to emphasize the comedy, you know, how over the top it is and and match it. Uh, What he did is he matched the tone of the film, which why, you know, while it has all this over the top, absurd imagery and jokes and all that kind of stuff. It's played it's straight. Played straight, yeah. Right. It's played completely. That's what makes it funny, and the score is completely straight. You know, it's not emphasizing the comedy bits. It is like a real airplane disaster movie score, right? Which is, and, and again, the juxtaposition of that seriousness versus the the silliness is what elevates it. You know, it's the it's the composite, the the emergent property. Yeah, it's it's you know Robert Stack. Being typical, very serious Robert Stack, but saying crazy things <laughs> as though it is something that he would say any day of the week with no problem. <laughs> you know, everybody knows John Williams. John Williams is great. John Williams is also, here it is. Here's the hot take. John Williams is pretty samey, samey. Like, you, you could probably take the Harry Potter music and put it in E.T. And not be there, not be much difference. Well, there's been several instances where I might be kind of like humming, maybe like the Star Wars theme, and then suddenly I'm in Indiana Jones. Right. Right, like like he he has a bandwidth, and I'm not saying that he's not good, and that he doesn't like those are iconic scores. Right, any classical composer, not that's not fair. Many 17th, 18th, you know, century, 19th century classical composers had a sound. Chopin had a sound. Rachmaninoff had a sound. You know, when you hear a Schubert symphony, they all have a specific sound that you know this is. You don't have to make up names. Use actual people. The the exception, the exceptions are like 
Bachs and Beethovens of the world who who do still have sound, but their their breadth. So I don't think it's necessarily think it's a ding on John Williams to say that he has a sound. No. He's still a he's still a great composer, and yes. I think his music will outlast most of the other crap that we're hearing. Well, no, yeah, I mean he and he 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 understands the assignment, right. as they say. Like like he yeah he gets it. Uh, on the same token, you know, Danny Elfman has a very distinct sound. Like, you can right. pick out a Danny Elfman uh, as offbeat as it is. So that might be esoteric enough to maybe describe who he is for folks. Because I don't, I mean, Simpsons, of course, is what most people I think would know him from. No, but, Batman. Right. But, I mean, Spider-Man. All the mans. He did he did all the mans movies. Uh, no, Danny Elfman, it works as Tim Burton's go-to guy until they yes. falling out. And I think they've patched up. Edward Scissorhand, Beetlejuice, any yeah. any Burton film, right. that sound is Danny Elfman, who was a front man for Oingo Boingo. Not sound like Danny Elfman. No, it does not. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I, lo- I love Oingo Boingo, but like that's a different ball game. Yes, that shows you that his his uh, he's got a deep bench because like, <laughs> like he like, ain't John Williams. <laughs> Oingo Boingo is a very specific sound, and it is it is far removed from um, this it's is Halloween. Stuff. Yeah, right. Which is which is awesome. You know that that he has that that ability. Somebody that that I don't think gets enough credit is Jerry Goldsmith. Yeah, very good. Who who our listeners will know from writing the theme to Star Trek The Motion Picture. Still, like, like that is such an iconic, absolutely wonderful score. Everything about it is is great. I, I disagree. I think most folks will know him from doing the the music for the Mummy, <laughs> the classic Brendan Fraser film. <laughs> the people that listen to our podcast from the next generation get out of here with that Mummy garbage. <laughs> Look, that would be a shame. That that's your favorite movie. You told me that confidence, but I think it's time people know. <laughs> I didn't like the Mummy because I felt like it was it was a bad ripoff of better movies. You're wrong. It's a good movie. If Bruce Campbell was in the Brendan Fraser role, I would have no problem with it. So you're a Fraserite. That's your problem. I'm an anti an anti Fraserite. Yeah. I'm not gonna say that. That'll get me hate mail. People love that dude, man. I have nothing against Brendan Fraser. He seems like a great guy, but like. The internet just decided to like adopt him all of a sudden. I mean, it's like you left him twisted in the wind for twenty years. Now you're gonna act like he's your best friend. Where where were you <laughs> when the royalties dried up? <laughs> I think Jerry Goldsmith might have done Congo. Could I have So I, I I rescind everything that I said. <laughs> he's got a deep bridge too because he also did the Planet of the Apes. Right, that's the big, that's yeah. the one I actually know him from is Planet of the Apes. And I would say for me, that's probably the, when I think Jerry Goldsmith, that's the iconic 
you know, the. The classic uh, Planet of the Apes uh, sound for me. That's what what comes to mind when I think of that. So I actually didn't know he did the music for Star Trek Motion Picture. So I did Thirteenth Warrior. L. That's L. a great movie too. I, so, I love the fact that even though you guys were like dinging me for my preparation, Josh is still looking stuff like up. Googling online. in real time. That's okay. <laughs> we Google so you don't have to. That's what our job. <laughs> so here's the thing. Here's the hot take that I have on all this. So when we pitched this, when we were pitched this idea on Facebook, the first thing that came to mind to me is there's a handful of movies that really stand out to me for the music. They, and the way the music makes me feel in the film or it, it, or the way it drives the narrative of the story. And it takes what could be, to your point about the John Carpenter showing the, the dailies or whatever or the, or the pre-screening for a movie without, without the appropriate soundtrack, how that's totally terrible. It takes what could be a terrible movie and elevates it in my eyes. And I'll give you an example. And, I, and this I think you'll be pleased with Josh's Snatch. Without, without the soundtrack, without the specific way that Guy Ritchie chose the songs to be the way they are and the way they the way they fit in with the background of the story, mm-hmm. I think it's a terrible movie. But if you turned off all the music, it's WKRP in Cincinnati for me, right? This this for me, the movie and the soundtrack are so intertwined in my mind. The way that Guy Ritchie ripped off Martin Scorsese. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. <laughs> No, I, I I get it. I, I think you know, and I think that most, I think Scorsese would agree that like you know, like his use of pop songs and Michael sure. Ma- Michael Mann is right. another is another great example because Manhunter using Inagata Devita at the, the last ten minutes when uh right. when he's he's going after after the killer. Michael Mann was his ability to take contemporary music and mix it into to make it cool like they call it the mtvization of film and stuff but like miami vice seared into my brain there's um they're seeing their crockets driving down the highway at night uh genesis is i can feel it coming in the air it's playing yep. and it's like that's a cultural touchstone It's not necessarily you don't have to have music created for yeah. the film for it to be impactful. Like they said, Scorsese, Scorsese is really great at it because, and I think he's shown it in even some of his more modern stuff because I think he's even like used Nirvana and stuff like that when it was appropriate for the time frame that the film was in at that time. Right. That that music clues you in to a particular point in time. Yeah, like even if you didn't live through, it, but especially if you lived through it, because right, it's the it's the transport of nature of music outside of of a score that that yeah puts you right there. Like you, when you hear uh, the Stones, you're in the 1960s. When when you see somebody in a helicopter and you hear Fortunate, Fortunate Son. Son, Son, right, and that's that's a great example. The Fortunate Son of the of synthesis antithesis. Right. Synthesis, because that's a, that's an anti-war song. You got a guy right. on a chopper going into Vietnam. You got Gary Sinise in a helmet there. <laughs> <laughs> For the love of God, Gary Sinise, listen to our podcast. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> he's too he's too busy doing like USO stuff to listen to our podcast. He's too busy doing good stuff for the human. He's guy. got he's got the Lieutenant Dan band to, to worry about. That's what they're called. Joe <laughs> <laughs> hit me with silence. <laughs> I was, I was waiting for Adam to take back over the, the show. No, it's okay. It's What I was going to say is that uh, an, an interesting example of this that I got to, to witness was when um, is for the Guardians of the Galaxy, the first movie. That soundtrack, of course, the, that's a plot point in the movie is his mom makes him that mixtape and it becomes a it becomes a MacGuffin of sorts. Mm. Uh, I think in the second one, right, where he has to go, whatever. Those, those hits, those songs from that soundtrack were they they charted again after that movie came out which is neat uh because people were rediscovering them on spotify or whatever but what was what what i thought was funny kids my daughter's age started singing these songs and even if they hadn't seen the movie Mm -hmm. these songs came back around and and like that's just hilarious to me (laughs) like like your rebel your active rebellion is listening to 60s and 70s rock (laughs) well I, I i think it's a it's a testament to the power of film is that the cultural bleed, I guess. Yeah. Because yeah. it's like, I mean, my kids know it all about Chucky and stuff. It's like they didn't, you know, they don't watch Child's Play. Uh, right. I would probably let them watch Child's Play because it's, you know, I think because you're a terrible dad. Yeah. Because <laughs> I want to watch Child's Play and not Veggie Tales for the fifth yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's just on that's on brand for you. That's right. <laughs> But you know, but but they they know who they know Jason is. They know who Freddie is, and it, there's like I wish somebody would do a. I, it's 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 like I guess it's a thing of the past now because of the internet. I remember being a kid and talking about Obi Wan Kenobi and Anakin fighting on like Anakin being thrown into like some lava, and that's how he got all disfigured and stuff. That ain't anywhere. Like that's not in. I don't know how I knew that and how other kids knew that, but everybody knew that. Like, how was that transmitted through the playgrounds? What a weird thing. Well, it, it it's it's like we talked about before. Just the you know after the Challenger explosion in the eighties. <laughs> yes, it didn't take too long for some very very tasteless jokes. Need another well, seven astronauts like the next day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Adam's just first here. Adam was homeschooled. <laughs> what is the official shampoo of NASA? And, <laughs> Head and shoulders. I thought it was like, did you know Christina McCullough had dandruff? They found her head and shoulders all over the beach. <laughs> Essentially the same. Yeah, thing. right, it's right. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, how, yeah. like, but now, like, that's, now the internet, you know where everybody gets it. Everybody gets right. it. But but how did like did you not know that when you were a kid about Anakin and and Obi Wan, you just yeah. knew it. No, yeah, it was just it was. Uh, yeah, and the thing is, is, like if you try to think back of where you first heard it, it was just from some other kid. But right. I also knew it. So and like, like <laughs> yeah, like young young would be like that's collective unconscious. That's how like. <laughs> that's and, and, and then I would be like, Matrix. right? I'd be yeah. like, <laughs> what what a stupid thing for a uh, for the for us as a as a collective consciousness to to think about (laughs) (laughs) what what a waste of this magical thing young where we're all connected in the unconscious to talk about star wars but here we are this is how the machines keep you down (laughs) (laughs) they keep you compliant with these useless thoughts so another one that i want to talk about which is a terrible movie not terrible but not a great movie 
is The Saint. No, The Saint is not a good movie. Yeah, it's not. I mean, it's just bad, but it's one redeeming quality is it has a really good soundtrack. It, it's like... I don't even I remember, remember the soundtrack. It, it's a... It's... Um, it's a bit all over the place, the music, and you you can look it up. But it's 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 a, the type it's the type of music that I was really into when I saw that movie for the first time. So then I was like, oh, these are all songs that I really like already, and then that made the movie feel elevated to me was because it, like it was music stabbing westward. No, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it, yeah. have you never have you never seen the say it's got Garth Brooks in it and. <laughs> Well, Adam has been fun having you on the podcast. I only listen to Chris Gaines. I don't know. This <laughs> is Eric Church, right? That's your go-to. Um, I will never not throw out Chris Gaines and Garth Brooks's face. Whatever. It's it's for people. You know, it's Duran Duran. It's uh, Moby. Everything but the girl. People like that. So it's it's that electro dance late 90s or you know or what mid to late 90s music mealy mouth beta male music yeah (laughs) for me it's one of the best soundtracks like i just i loved it i really i still was i I bought the soundtrack right out of the theater went and bought the soundtrack (laughs) i don't remember and honestly i don't remember the movie much at all it's a very forgettable movie but the importance in my life of that music it elevated the film like it's one of those examples of where even if the movie's terrible, it can still be salvaged just by good music. To yeah, me, so. well, you know, you know what had a good soundtrack and was probably not the best movie it was um, Natural Born Killers. Oh, that's a good example too. Great, yeah. no, that's great. a really good. They, they play, yeah. they did Mazzy Star, and uh, yeah, yeah. I can't, I can't listen to Mazzy Star without thinking about that movie. Or um, the Cowboys Junkies yeah. did a cover of Sweet Jane that is that's pretty righteous and hip. <laughs> is that what the kids say? They yes, say like that's what they, say. they say bussin now. That's one of the something the kids say. Yeah, the not kids after not, this not, podcast drop. Not yeah. No. yeah, once once we figure out what the lingo is, that's when it's like that's by the time you figured it out, it's already gone. It's that's... the cultural <laughs> graveyard. <laughs> we we're the murderer of cool things. <laughs> We acknowledge it, and all of a sudden, kids are like, "Oh my god!" That's what happened to Facebook in a sentence. <laughs> One of my favorite soundtracks that I still listen to occasionally uh, because it works so well with the movie, uh, the Crow soundtrack. Oh yeah. Oh, good, good call. Yeah. Because I mean, it's got a lot of bands in there that weren't getting mainstream attention, but like I said, they they fit right in with that feel. Detroit, you know, just this disintegrating uh culture and city and just the the rampant and all that kind of uh, crime and everything and it's you have all these industrial bands that i'd never heard of before yeah but stuff with like i think my life with the thrill kill cult and, mm-hmm. and people like that but you know anchored by you know like the cure mm-hmm. and you know nine inch nails and all that kind of stuff just a great soundtrack from beginning to end I'm really leery of like like the the Crow reboot has been in development hell for decades. Yeah, and that's that's never ever a good sign. I think the most recently Bill Skarsgård 
has been attached to it, which I think he would do a fine job. But it's such, like, due to the tragedy and just the nature of the film, it's like, it's almost like, it's like, was it the, is it the Indian, what's the, the, the Arizona that's like sank out in Pearl Harbor? Like, it's, right. they, they built the monument over it, but like, there's no, you don't want to raise it up or anything. It's like, right. Like that's how I feel about the crow. The crow it should be left alone. The crow, yeah. right? The crow needs to to stay as it is and enshrined. Don't mess with it, you know. Yeah. Because you can make a documentary about it, but don't make a, a remake of it. That's, right. It, it's it. It really even outside the tragedy. It's like it's such a of the time. Yeah. Film. <clears throat> like I mean, the soundtrack. Everything about it is like it's it's just. It's dated in not a bad way. It's it's like a it's like a snapshot in time. This is a, so this may be a good opportunity for us to do what we what I promised earlier in the episode, which was maybe people don't understand why the crow has this sort of Arizona esque. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's common knowledge to folks like you and me and Jason, but maybe not everybody. Uh, so, do you want to qu- quickly tell the story of what happened there and why it's during the the filming? And this is. This has actually been repeated recently right. on a small independent film with uh, yes. Stephen Baldwin. Uh, Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin, excuse me. Leave Stephen out of this. <laughs> <laughs> Keep his name out of your mouth, Jason. <laughs> During the, the filming of The Crow, there was a scene where it, it's the scene where uh, Brandon Lee, the, the lead actor's character, Eric Draven, is killed because the whole concept of the film is that he comes back to avenge his and his fiance's death. The prop responsible for the gun had actually been sent home for the And so the, the new prop master didn't know the actual procedure. So he didn't know he was supposed to check the barrel to make sure it was clean. And there was something still lodged in the barrel from uh, a previous firing of a blank. And when the actor fired the new blank, that piece of debris was ejected from the barrel, struck Brandon Lee fatally. That was a big thing about that film was the fact that he he passed in making it and the connection of the actual context of the film with what happened to him. And right. so it's it's one of those things that we've talked about uh, before. Like I said, it's it's very hard to separate from my mind whether or not that it's a fantastic performance from Brandon Lee or if the fact that he died during the making of that film. Right. Well, and yeah, and then his, his father being Bruce Lee and there being uh, conspiracies around his yeah. death and stuff. So there's like, there was this gravitas going to it. And it's, it's such a, it, it's such a weird thing, you know, and there's, there, there are films that, and I, and I want to do an episode on this on, on cursed films or whatever, but films where tragedy strikes. You got Twilight Zone, you've got The Crow, uh, Poltergeist. That stuff attaches to that film. You can't, you can't pull them apart. You know, I, I'm just really weird about rebooting that. You know. Yeah, I agree. In a, I in a weird way, pretty... it's almost it's 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 disrespectful. Right. But you got to make that money. <laughs> People pay to see it. So, Jason, what what else is on your mind? Purple Rain. That's a cool choice. Prince himself. And what? Mm-hmm. So, explain why and what what that means to you, and also talk about it a little bit for people who don't have a clue what you're talking about. 
Hey, once again, another cultural touchstone for the 1980. Right. Prince essentially makes this movie that it, that is kind of a, a veiled autobiography in, mm-hmm. in a lot of respects. But it's it's about you know, a musician in was it Minneapolis, Minnesota? Minneapolis. Yep. His pa- band being like the house band and a rival band from another club their rivalry and also him taking on a uh, a young woman as is in a kind of apprenticeship type situation but also the romantic undertones and overtones and all that but it's it's prince being prince singing prince songs I don't even think it's even sold as a soundtrack. It's just Purple Rain, the album. It is, if you know any songs, they're more than likely come from this album. Prince was a king in my mind. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's very hard to describe Prince to people who don't know who Prince was, who didn't hear that music and actually lived through that that era and how important he was to the sound of the 80s. Well, yeah, he he wrote, he wrote, wrote he wrote Manic Monday for the Bengals. Um, He wrote, uh, Sinead O'Connor's big. Yeah. 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 I mean, he was, he was as big and influential as Michael Jackson easily. Um, Yeah, absolutely. More, more behind the scenes. Yeah. He created his own content and, and for other people. And, do you have anything else uh, that you'd like to talk about, Josh? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> I like music. I, I was supposed to stop. I, I like that right music because <laughs> you've done because you've done it twice, and I want to mention it. Is you're like the worst improv partner in the history of ever anything. Like we've already discussed this. Always, I'm Michael Scott. I always, I always have a gun on the pod. But yes, we have in real life many times where you're always like, no. <laughs> And you know what? It's never not funny. It's true. Yes. <laughs> That's just his response to his daughters all the time. It's like Can we take the movies. No. Can we it's, have food? No. No. It's like when Jason will like somebody will say something. Jason will say, and they also did and describe that, so it makes what you said sound like sexual innuendo. <laughs> <laughs> That's his thing. My thing is just to not care. <laughs> You need a thing, Adam. You also need a bit. But, <laughs> there you go. That's a, Bazinga! <laughs> That's what that guy in that show you like would say, huh? Uh, <laughs> Your thing is... Fraser say- says in that show, the Fraser guy. Fraser say- says Bazinga. You're like, you're like a... Like a seventy-year-old retired monster. It's like that—that that guy in that show you like, man. You're, <laughs> he he say that, wouldn't he? I thought you were gonna say we're like bullies, which we are. I mean, <laughs> your, your whole reason d'etat, whatever your reason for being, is for us to bully you. Uh, yeah. And see, Jason's like a bigger bully than me. But I'm the guy that like like deflects by bullying on you, so he'll bully on you and not me. <laughs> well, that's the dynamic I, of the show. I didn't know this was going to be our last episode. <laughs> we Here's the great thing about when people get bullied: you you keep coming back. 
<laughs> Your mom is going to keep sending you to school, Adam. <laughs> there's, there's this episode of The Simpsons where it says to Bart, I don't think those boys are your friends. <laughs> this has been another episode of The Brick Pit. If you'd like to get in touch with us, uh, we'd love to hear from you. The way to do that is to go to anchor.fm forward slash Brick Pit. Another way you can reach us is at our Gmail address at brickpit at gmail.com. Or you can find us on social media, on Facebook and Twitter, and search for the Brick Pit Podcast, where you'll be able to engage in great conversations with us. Until next time, this is Adam. This is Josh. This is Jason. We're the three amigos.